Hey, it's Hillary Frank, creator and executive producer of this show. So you guys have probably heard me talk about my book, Weird Parenting Wins. It's a book full of unusual parenting strategies from listeners of this show. Maybe you're one of them. Well, I just wrapped up my book tour for Weird Parenting Wins, and it was amazing to meet so many of you. I even got to meet some people whose parenting strategies are in the book. Now, if I didn't come to a city near you, you can still get a signed book. We have them right now in the Longest Shortest Time shop. Just go to podswag.com slash longshort. That's podswag.com slash longshort. Now, on to the show with our host, Andrea Salenzi. One night, Danny and her husband were hanging out at home, and he noticed a sale in one of those DNA testing kits. He was ordering one and asked Danny if she wanted in. I was like, I don't need to do that. I mean, I, I know everything about my family. I know my roots. I know their stories. I know their history. I know my family tree. But for some reason, I sort of shrugged and said, sure. I mean, it was on sale. He was doing it anyway, so it seemed just like a recreational thing to do. When the results came back, Danny was expecting it to say she was Ashkenazi Jewish. Both of her parents were Jewish, from Jewish families, so she assumed it would say 100% or 90-something. But instead, her results said she was only 52%. The rest was a smattering of French, Irish, English, and German. But that did not alarm me. I just thought, well, maybe that's the way it is. Danny assumed it probably had something to do with previous generations, migrating, conflicts. But then on her page, a new relative showed up, a first male cousin with the initials A.T. She definitely didn't know this guy. So that got my attention. A little bit more. Just, I mean, not entirely, just like, well, that's really weird, and now we have to get to the bottom of this. Something was off. Even though it was getting late, Danny asked her husband to get someone on the phone from the testing service, let them know that her vial had been mixed up in the lab. These companies now pretty much staff people to answer the phones to deal with these kinds of calls, which they're getting pretty regularly, I understand. Wow. Could you imagine that job? Can you imagine that job? I know. Do vials ever get mixed up? Does this happen? Never. So what they're there for and what their training is about is explaining what is known in that industry as what's called an NPE, which stands for Not Parent Expected. This is The Longest Shortest Time. I'm Andrea Salenzi. And spring is nearly here, which means it's the time of year when the DNA test you maybe took back in December is coming back with the results. When memoirist Danny Shapiro got her results at age 54, they revealed a family secret, a secret she had no idea was being kept, something she never would have learned otherwise. But then, when she started looking back at her life, started uncovering all these clues that led her to wonder, have I always known? It's the subject of her memoir, a kind of modern genetic detective story called Inheritance. When Danny's strange DNA results came in, there was now this question. What if one of her parents wasn't her real parent? It wasn't the first time she'd considered the idea. When I was growing up, I had the fantasy that my mother wasn't my mother. 
I didn't know exactly how that would work, but it felt to me like she and I did not share a bond. I think, you know, it's a cliche, but I think in, she, she did the best she could, but with very limited resources emotionally. And I just didn't feel connected to her. I felt extremely connected to my dad. Neither of Danny's parents were still alive. So the best way to get to the bottom of things was to compare DNA test results with her half-sister. The half-sister and Danny shared a dad. So if they shared DNA, then at least Danny would know that her dad was still her biological father. I heard my husband coming up the stairs, and he he came into my office, and he was holding his laptop, and he told me that my sister's results had come in. Danny had been in the middle of packing. They had an early morning flight the next day to San Francisco. And we sat there together and looked at them, and he already knew what they meant. I just was looking at a bunch of numbers and greater than signs and equal signs, and I didn't know what any of it meant. Behind them, on the wall of Danny's office, was a black and white portrait of her paternal grandmother. Her hair parted in the center, pulled back tight, her gaze serene. What they spelled out was that we had no biological connection. We were not sisters. We were not half-sisters. You and I are probably more closely related than my half-sister of 54 years and I were. The dad Danny grew up with was from a well-known Orthodox Jewish family, and he worked as a trader on Wall Street. He was mostly bald, with dimples and round glasses inside thin metal frames. When Danny was a kid, she loved being around him. I remember him praying. His morning prayers, you know, there was was a lot of ritual around them. I remember him going to synagogue. And I also remember him coming home at the end of the day from work, and the garage door going up in his the sound of the rumble of the garage door and his coming inside and somehow that being a moment in the day that I was always waiting for. In her office that night, Danny was freezing. Her husband wrapped his arms around her. But not before she saw the look on his face. He never looked at her like that before. Not when her mother had died, not even when their new baby was sick. It was almost a look of pity. It's not a mistake, he said. He knew better than anyone what the connection to her father meant to Danny. My dad died when I was 23 in a car accident. And at the time that he died, I was in the worst shape that I had ever been in my life or ever again would be in my life. I had dropped out of college. I was having this really ill-advised relationship with an older married man who had kind of taken over my life in certain ways. I was just a mess. I was a total hot mess of a young woman. And that would have been my father's last knowledge of me before he died. And so something that happened to me around the time of his death, which was transformative, was that I had very much the sense that the only way that I could survive it was to make meaning out of it for myself, and to become the person that he would have been proud of. And so in some way, I think I had this magical feeling that maybe he in fact really was proud of me. Maybe he could see what was happening as I grew up finally, and I went back to school, and I wrote my first novel, and it was published, and I began to teach, and I became this successful human in the world. And Whether or not I fully believed that, it was more as if I was pointed in the direction of making him proud, and that had always served me very well. 
He was sort of my North Star. At the airport the next day, still before dawn, Danny killed time. She sipped a mediocre cappuccino and started looking around the Hartford International Airport, locking eyes with every man above a certain age, wondering if they were related. Danny started looking for clues in her own memories. I think when there's something that we're being told or that we overhear that is really important, even if we don't know that it's really important, our brains turn into little recording devices, and it goes somewhere safe where it's going to just kind of stay until it's time in some way. Sitting in the airport, a conversation came back to Danny, almost word for word. It was from a night in 1988 when Danny was a graduate student at Sarah Lawrence. It was the second anniversary of her father's death, and she hadn't wanted her mom to be alone, so she brought her along to a student reading on campus. At that gathering, I introduced my mother to a friend of mine, and my mother said, oh, nice to meet you, where are you from? And my classmate said, Philadelphia. And my mother, just without missing a beat, she said, oh, my daughter was conceived in Philadelphia. And I absolutely don't believe my mother intended to say that that night. So I said, Mom, what do you mean? I've never heard that. And she said, oh, it's not a pretty story. So it's not like they had a romantic weekend in Philadelphia and exactly. got a nice like, hotel room. No, and... that's what I was first thinking. I was like, oh, was, did you just go away from New Jersey to Philadelphia? That's, that's interesting. a lot of information. Okay. <laughs> yeah, TMI, but all right. And driving home that night, I pushed her. Her mom said... There was a doctor, an institute, Philadelphia. Your father and I were having some trouble conceiving. He had slow sperm. She explained that the institute had a way of tracking a woman's cycle and that they'd call Danny's father on the floor of the New York Stock Exchange. He would race down to do the procedure. Danny would have asked, what procedure? And her mom had said, artificial insemination, adding, I told you, not a pretty story. But it was because of this story the details Danny's mom gave her on that drive in the dark all those years ago, that Danny now had some key pieces to her puzzle. Without any of those pieces, I would have been left looking at a computer screen, discovering that my father wasn't my biological father, and then just nothing. Danny and her husband were now on the plane, preparing for takeoff. Outside, the sun was going up, glowing orange over the tarmac. Still in her memories... Danny recalled a phone call, also from 1988, where she'd repeated that weird conversation with her mom about the Institute and Philadelphia to her half-sister. She asked her then if she remembered anything from that time. She didn't really, but what she did say to me was, you might want to look into this further, because there was a practice in those days of mixing sperm, mixing donor sperm with the intended father's sperm. As their plane reached 10,000 feet, her husband Michael splurged on some airplane Wi-Fi, started trying to learn what he could about this new first cousin on the website, A.T. Danny closed her eyes and recalled repeating that conversation with their half-sister back to her mom, saying, I heard they would mix the sperm. Danny remembered her mother. Didn't tense, didn't blink. There wasn't a glimmer of surprise or distress on her face. And my mother completely sort of shut me down in a kind of brilliant way. She said, you knew your father. Can you imagine he ever would have agreed to su such a thing? It would have meant that he wouldn't have known that his child was Jewish. 
like Danny's ancestors had done for generations, she started to Talmudically parse this remembered conversation for clues. A few things stood out. First, the bizarreness of the phrase mixed sperm. If you've never heard this before, you'd kind of gasp, like, who does that? My mother did not gasp. My mother was someone who was familiar with that concept, I would say. Then another clue. Danny's mom never answered the question about mixed sperm. She just said, well, then he wouldn't have known whether or not his child was Jewish, which struck Danny as strange. Because really, isn't what's more significant there wouldn't have known that his child was his? There's a phrase in Hebrew, lador vador, from generation to generation. It's one of the most fundamental tenets of Judaism. Lador vador, Danny standing at her son's bar mitzvah, wrapping him in her father's tallis, showing him how to keep his prayer shawl on with ornate clips that belonged to his great-grandfather. If she didn't come from these paternal ancestors, then who? I felt like half of my roots had been ripped out from under me. I was having bizarre, kind of crazy thoughts like, well, when I die, where will I go? There was such a feeling of, I had just lost all my ancestors. There was this other clue in the back of her mind. Danny's father was, without question, an unhappy man. There was a sorrow to him, a way that his smile felt hard-earned. Danny had always believed that this was tied to losing a great love before he met her mother. In his sadness, she'd always known that there was a secret. But now she wondered if that secret was her. Danny's whole life, she was told she didn't look like her family, didn't look Jewish. Every day, really, in one way or another, somebody would say that to me from the time I was a young child. Most memorably, this happened when Danny was a child in the 1960s, during an exchange with an elderly Holocaust survivor, a woman named Mrs. Kushner. Who is, in fact, later became the grandmother of Jared Kushner, was over visiting my parents, and they were having a Sabbath lunch together, and I came out to say hello to the grown-ups, and Mrs. Kushner put her hand on me. I was very small, and I was very fair, and very pale, blue-eyed. It's not even that I didn't look Jewish. Something that's come to me in the last couple of years is, because I don't even know what that means, I did look like I was from another part of the world. I think that's what people were registering. That day in her parents' backyard in New Jersey, Mrs. Kushner ran her hand through Danny's white blonde hair. The adults sipped cold iced tea next to a spread of sliced brisket and cold poached asparagus. Mrs. Kushner put her hand on me and she said, We could have used you in the ghetto, little blondie. You could have gotten us bread from the Nazis. And I never forgot it. But my reasons for never forgetting it, I thought, were simply that that's a terrible thing to say to a child, stunning thing to hear when you're a kid, and that I think it instilled in me a sense of guilt that if I had been alive at another time that I could have been helpful and saved people's lives, and whatever that crazy sentence would mean to a very young child. So I, I felt like it had stayed with me for those reasons, and... It wasn't really until the last few years that I thought, well, she was telling me, as was everyone who ever said some version of, you don't look Jewish to me, she was saying, you are not who you think you are. You are other. You are not one of us. You don't look like one of us. And I didn't. You write about this term that comes from psychoanalysis, 
the unthought known. Do you believe that you had known this on some level as you started to tap back into those old memories? Well, what I got to have, which probably no one else in the world would have in this situation, is I I had a body of work. If you were to look at Danny's first novel, a book called Family History, there's a scene where a young girl is being put to bed by her father. Danny will admit that this is a work of thinly veiled fiction. The young girl is Danny, and the father's her dad. Instead of putting his daughter to bed with fairy tales, in the book, he tells her stories from their family history. And one of the stories, which I absolutely had cribbed from stories in my own family history, was about going to deliver meals on one of the Jewish holidays to poor people in New York City. When you go do that, it's not a mitzvah um, if you're seen doing it. It has to be anonymous. And so the father, as a little boy, was delivering a meal to the doorstep of uh, a rabbi who had fallen on hard times. And the rabbi opened the door and saw the little boy, the little boy who's her father, who's my father, essentially, and said, you, little boy, turn around. And the little boy says, I don't want to turn around because then it's not going to be a mitzvah. You'll know who I am. And the rabbi said, well, I would know you anywhere. You're a Greenberg. I would know that face anywhere in the world. And then my narrator, Lucy Greenberg, is falling asleep, and she's thinking, that's how I want it to be for me. I want wherever I go in the world to be known by my face. There goes a Greenberg. I want people to be able to say. And in another book, a memoir called Still Writing, Danny writes about snooping through her parents' things when she was younger. The sentence was, what was I searching for? A clue, a reason, and reason was italicized. Now, still puzzling over her DNA results, after finally arriving in San Francisco, Danny and Michael checked into their hotel room in Japantown. Danny's sense of disorientation was only growing in this new city. She's talking about normal things, like where to get dinner and how she needed to call her editor to discuss a new book jacket design. But underneath, she was shook. In the tiny hotel bathroom, she stood in front of a mirror, studying her face. It had made everything make so much sense so quickly. It was like the missing lens through which to really be able to see that which had always eluded me. Michael was now on the phone with a journalist friend, a self-identified genealogy geek, who helped him find the last name of that cousin, A.T. using the names of shared relatives. Then they found the cousin's mother's name, then her obituary, which included the names of all the cousin's uncles. The journalist friend explained that medical students were often recruited to be sperm donors back at the time when Danny was conceived, which is why one of the uncles stood out. He was a former medical student at the University of Pennsylvania in Philadelphia. In a bit, Danny Googles the name of the man who might be her biological father. Stay with us. And we're back. So Danny's in San Francisco now with her husband, Michael. It's only been 36 hours since getting her DNA results. And now in the hotel room, they have the name of her likely biological father. His name, which has been changed for the book, is Benjamin Walden. Danny's husband kicks off his shoes, and they balance the laptop between them on the hotel bed while they browse his website. 
Ben Walden is a retired physician and a professor of medical ethics. They click on a YouTube video of him in a classroom giving a lecture. Here's Danny recalling the scene read from her memoir, Inheritance. An old man with white hair and blue eyes was standing at a lectern. My God, I whispered. Time slowed to a near standstill. I couldn't compute what I was seeing, or rather, who I was seeing. The man was wearing khakis, a blue button-down shirt, and a fleece vest. He had a pale complexion, but his cheeks were pink, his color high. My exact coloring. Somewhere, in the background, the comments I had fielded just about every day for 54 years. You sure you're Jewish? There's no way you're Jewish. Did your mother have an affair with a Swedish milkman? I saw my jaw, my nose, my forehead, and eyes. I heard something familiar in the timbre of his voice. It wasn't merely a resemblance. It was a quality, the way he held himself, his pattern of speech. He was recommending a book to the audience, Atul Gawande's Being Mortal. He referenced an article in The Onion. I had the bizarre thought that he had good literary taste. I ran my hands down the length of my legs. Who was I? What was I? I felt as if I might disintegrate right there in that hotel room floating high above the city. This wasn't what I wanted to see, but now that I had seen it, I would never be able to unsee it. Dr. Ben Walden. His name continued to appear beneath the lectern. The glint of eyeglasses, a wedding ring. Michael raised the volume. The man's voice moved through me and around me, like something invisible stitched into the air. In just a moment, I'll open it up to questions. Jesus, Michael was saying, Jesus Christ. Now Ben Walden was gesticulating. He held both his hands in front of him as if bracketing the air in parentheses, a gesture that I suddenly recognized as my own. I knew in a place beyond thought that what I was seeing was the truth, the answer to the unanswerable questions I had been exploring all my life. The audience in Portland was now raising their hands. He called on someone in the back row, then nodded, smiling slightly as he listened. Do you see that, I asked Michael, the way he's... He even runs a Q&A like you, Michael said. You made the decision to write to him, which I feel like sitting down to write that email would have been impossible. But you did it quick. Yeah, it wasn't like a decision. There was this journalist uh, acquaintance of ours who was helping us out in the figuring out of the finding of Ben Walden. And she was on the speakerphone, actually, at the moment that we did find him. And I think I must have said something about, well, I'm going to write him. And she said, well, you know, there are templates for this sort of thing. And I just remember I was in a surreal state, but within that surreality, my mind was so sharp. I think probably in that kind of survival kind of way. I mean, I just was like, I'm a writer. I, I mean, I can write a really mean email. Danny imagined a stately 78-year-old retired physician in Portland, Oregon, sitting down to check his email. Dear Dr. Walden, I'm writing to you about something that may come as a shock. My name is Danny Shapiro, and I am a 54-year-old novelist, memoirist, wife, and mother of a 17-year-old son. I recently took a DNA test as nothing more than a lark. I have always believed my parents to be my biological parents, but now I have reason to believe that you may be my biological father. I won't write more unless A, this makes sense to you, and B, you're willing to communicate with me about it. I so hope you're willing. I'm going to send you a link to my website so you can see something of who I am. Thank you, Danny. Would you have been okay if he never wrote back? Nope. 
based on the similarities in the video, the proximity between the Institute and the medical school, and the years Ben Walden studied there, Danny was fairly certain this was her father. But when Ben Walden would have donated sperm in 1961, he would have been promised anonymity. 1961 was only nine years after Watson and Crick had discovered DNA. It would have been hard to imagine a future where, for the price of a nice birthday dinner, you could spit into a vial and get back your entire genetic heritage. With that email, the greatest surprise of Danny's life had become his. Danny wanted two things from Ben Walden. First, to know her family medical history. Then, she wanted him to take a DNA test, just to make this all feel real. She had those two things. She felt like she could move forward in her life. But ultimately, I wanted more. And this is something that was true for me, that I'm also hearing the same language repeated almost exactly by other people. I wanted to look him in the eyes. Danny already knew she wanted to write about this. The next day, she wandered into the Japan Center next to their hotel, where she spent an hour looking through the stationery store for the perfect notebook. She came home instead with note cards. Her life was now in fragments, and this was how she planned to piece it back together. Danny and her husband finished their trip, flew home to Connecticut. Benjamin Walden still hadn't replied. Danny started to take his silence as a confession. But I wasn't sure because it also, he was 78 years old. Maybe he didn't check his email very often. Maybe he was out of town. Maybe he was infirm. I didn't know, which is why I sent the nudge. Always send a nudge. Then Walden replied. Dear Ms. Shapiro, I apologize for the delay answering. We were out of town. Plus, it's taking some time to process the information you sent. Danny read that part as an admission. If that email had landed somehow in the inbox of someone who was like, what? No, I was never a sperm donor. This is insane. What are you talking about? It went on. I have shared this with my wife, and we are thinking this over. We now reside in a retirement community and are enjoying our children and grandchildren. If you wish to send more information, we'll be glad to review it. Best regards, Ben Walden. What did you take from that email? He wanted to make sure that I was not disruptive. And I never had any intention of being disruptive. But these are relationships that don't have any playbook. Over their next few exchanges, Danny asked to meet. Fly out to Portland for a quick cup of coffee. But again, it was a long delay before Ben replied. He said when he donated sperm at 22... He'd been promised anonymity. That he'd visited her website and could see she was a very talented writer. But then he said, At this point in my life, I don't have the time, energy, or interest to pursue this further. Then, please believe me. I empathize with your quest to understand your genetic history, but this is going to be my final communication. Danny closed her laptop. She was trembling. What was it like to get that email? I mean, initially my feeling was some combination of disappointment, rage, and also a kind of belief that it wasn't the end of the story. Danny decided not to reply. She wanted Ben's own words to echo in his ears, which she believed they might, even though she didn't know him. The reply hadn't sounded like him, which is a weird thing to say about someone who's a total stranger. He actually has a very gentle and thoughtful quality, and this tone 
was harsher than any of his other notes to me, and it felt like he was slamming the door really quickly and really hard so that maybe it wouldn't open again. That night, Danny got a little tipsy out to dinner with friends, came home late, in a mood to write. I opened a file on my computer titled Imaginary Responses, and I just started writing. Imaginary response number one. Ben, for the rest of my life, when I look in the mirror, I will see your face. As I'm sure you've noted, the resemblance is more than striking. It would have been nice to have felt better about the face staring back at me. Imaginary response number two. Though I'm sure you have your reasons and can justify them to yourself, you're doing something cruel and inhumane. Not taking responsibility for something that you, in fact, did. In the intervening weeks, Ben Walden's daughter followed Danny on Twitter. Danny followed back. Felt like silently waving at each other. Hey, I see you. And then came another email from Ben. Subject line, second thoughts. He and his wife had an East Coast trip planned in six weeks. And he asked if Danny would like to meet them for lunch in New Jersey. And one of the touching things in that letter was that he he wrote that he felt that it might be important to both of us to make real somehow this biological connection that we had. He wasn't laying it at my feet. He wasn't saying, I'm doing you a favor in any way. The day they picked was Rev Yom Kippur, one of the holiest days of the year in Judaism. Danny wrote lunch with Ben onto her calendar. Just reading this gave her a jolt. Ben Walden was now more easily sharing personal details, that he preferred Italian food to Greek, that he once worked a summer in Trenton, and his cell phone number. Danny fixated on every detail of the lunch, found a tiny Italian restaurant, one with thick leather menus, checkered tablecloth, and she sent her friend to scout it out so she could reserve the perfect secluded corner table. When they met on the sidewalk outside, Danny shook Ben's hand. I'm Danny. To a passerby, the four of them would have looked like a family. Ben took an awkward half-step toward her, in a voice she describes as a fragment from a remembered dream. Said, it would be all right to give you a hug. We had all boned up on each other. Like, we all... My husband um, had written a book years ago about foreign aid. They had read the book. They had read several of my memoirs. They had looked up enough about my husband to know he had been in the Peace Corps. And my biological father had been in the Peace Corps. And so they came, all of us really, came armed with conversational points in case we needed them. When Danny first emailed Ben, he deleted it from his inbox, like a hot potato. Ben had donated sperm for a short while and hadn't thought about it since finishing medical school. Danny would later consider, how do you not think about that as a professor of medical ethics? But wondered if her parents did the same thing, all three of them bearing the consequences of their actions so deep it would seem there weren't any. I mean, my legs were shaking under the table the entire time. It wasn't, I never relaxed. I was hyper-conscious of sitting at a table with the man who I come from. And it was very, very obvious that that was the case. We look alike. Our gestures are similar. There's a quality to each of us that does feel familial. I almost couldn't bear looking at him for very long. The sun outside was going down. 
The waitstaff was setting up the restaurant for dinner. And outside, nearby synagogues were filling up with congregants, remembering their dead, preparing to fast. Ben pulled out his phone and asked Danny if she'd like to see a photo of his ancestors. In one, a couple stands in front of a farmhouse. She's in a flowered dress. Ben says, my parents, at home in Ohio. Danny thinks of the grandparents she knew, the imposing bald man with the yarmulke, the regal woman with her hair pulled tightly back. Danny pulled out a photo of her son, looking tan, looking an awful lot like Ben. One of the things that also was clear to me, maybe not sitting there, but in the days after, was that he wasn't my father. You know, he didn't feel like my father. He felt like the man I came from. He felt, you know, the expression cut from the same cloth. That is what it felt like. And I'd never experienced that because, ironically, I did not have that with my mother, even though she was my biological mother. I never felt cut from the same cloth as, as she, and I, I didn't look like her, and much more than physicality, I just was so different from her. And I didn't have it with my father. As much as we loved each other, I did not have that sense of the familiar and the familial with him. And I did have it with this man that I was meeting for the first time. Later, a rabbi would tell Danny that the Hebrew word for father, Abba, is composed of the first two letters of the alphabet. Alf-bet. He would ask her to accept these two tributaries, these two fathers that she comes from. Ben Walden still hasn't done the DNA test to confirm they're related. Danny suspects he's holding out for fear of finding more offspring. While Danny has spread her information as widely as possible on all the DNA websites, trying to increase her chances of finding more half-siblings and of them finding her. In a bit, we'll talk with Danny about what she thinks her parents knew about her paternity. Don't go away. Say advertisement. And we're back. Sometimes at our show, we get an email from a parent who's wondering if they should keep a secret from their kid. Most recently, it was from a father who adopted his niece when she was young and wondered if he should ever share with her her true origins. Wouldn't keeping a secret be easier? Danny disagrees. Where there's secrecy, there is a kind of toxicity that surrounds the secret. It affects the secret keepers. It affects the person from whom the secrets are kept. They they don't vanish because they're unspoken. Just because it isn't spoken doesn't mean that it doesn't exist. Do you wish your parents had told you the truth when you were a kid? And how do you think they could have told you? If they had told me? Yeah. Oh, well, I think that that would have been, this is where it becomes really impossible because I think it would have been catastrophic. Back in the 1960s, sperm donation was not a common practice. There weren't any kids' books about it. The first commercial sperm bank didn't even open until 1971. I would have been told, your father who you're bonded with and you adore is not your biological father. Your mother, who you have a difficult and impossible relationship with, is your biological parent. And you're never going to know who your biological father is. And there's no one to talk with about it. I think I wouldn't be sitting here with you. I think I'd be dead. 
I really think that what it would have done to my identity to be raised in that way would have been catastrophic. So my poor parents ended up in a situation, and look, I don't think that they struggled with whether to tell me. They were never going to tell me. But had they struggled, it would have been an impossible, truly between a rock and a hard place, because I do feel betrayed that a secret was kept from me, and yet I ended up much healthier for that secret having been kept. There's one living relative who might have known Danny's parents' secret, someone who might still be keeping it. Danny's Aunt Shirley was still alive, the little sister of the father Danny grew up with, now 93 years old. When Danny went to her home with an offering of bagels and locks, she nervously told Shirley what she'd learned about the DNA test, the Institute. Danny said, Dad isn't my biological father. Shirley leaned in, reached out a hand, and said, not giving you up. Shirley believed that Danny's parents had kept the secret very private, known only in the deepest interior of their marriage. Danny now believes that her parents likely knew they used mixed sperm, but over the years, it became a secret that they even kept from themselves. I think that I found this out at precisely the right moment in my life to be able to contend with it to still have a lot of time to make meaning out of it and to explore it and to unpack it and to do something with it and to have a sense of purpose around it. And to write a truly gorgeous book about it. Danny Shapiro is the author of Inheritance. And full disclosure, she was my college writing teacher and a really good one. Since meeting with her birth father, she started a friendship with his daughter, her half-sister. And the last time she did a reading in Portland, the Waldens filled up the entire fourth row. We want to hear from you. What surprised you when you gave DNA testing a spin? And what journey did it set you on? Tell us in the comments for episode number 191. This episode was produced by me, Andrea Salenzi, with Jackie Sajiko. Our editor is Amy Drostowska. Our show's creator and executive producer is Hilary Frank. Hilary's new book, Weird Parenting Wins, is out now, and we've signed copies for you at a devoted URL. Just go to podswag.com slash longshort to get a signed copy of Weird Parenting Wins. Podswag.com slash longshort. Our engineer is Brendan Burns, and our technical director is John Delore. Our music is performed by hotbombs.gov. We get editorial support from Peter Clowney, Antonia Acatunde, Anne-Marie Baldonado, Rekha Murthy, and Julia Wang. Next time on The Longest Shortest Time, journalist Danny McLean takes a lesson from her two-year-old. She always says, Mom, I don't want to listen to the news. I don't want to listen to the news. I want to listen to Donny Hathaway. <laughs> I'm like, you're right. Don't miss this episode. Subscribe to The Longest Shortest Time on Stitcher or wherever you're listening right now. And as always, here at The Longest Shortest Time, we want to hear your stories. Right now, we're interested in something that's hard to talk about. We'd love to hear from and about parents who regret having kids. Maybe you were raised by that person. Maybe you are that person some of the time or all the time. We are working on an episode where you can be anonymous in sharing that story. Tell us. Go to longestshortesttime.com, hit the Participate tab, and submit your story.
Okay.